Hello, welcome to another episode of The Hammer, an umpire podcast. As always, I'm your host, Kevin Weber. On this episode, I will examine the MHSAA uh, postseason uh, umpire test, questions 6 through 10 this time. We're going to spotlight former big league umpire Tom Gorman. Also, we're going to talk about controlling dugouts. And finally, we have uh, kind of two related segments, dealing with a bad apple and don't be this guy. So sit back and make sure you can hear me just fine with those brand new AirPod Pros I'm sure you've got stuck in your ears for another episode of The Hammer, an umpire podcast. This past week, I got an interesting email from a listener um, who is from a, a small high school association uh, that you know has less than, let's say, 50 people in it. And they have uh, a particular umpire that is a little bit uh, difficult to deal with. He's a guy that went to pro school and I believe worked a little bit of maybe minor league ball at some point or something, some kind of professional ball. And now he's back and helping this association and doing some of the training. Now, obviously, uh, if you go to pro school and you you get through and and you do get offered a job, um, you probably are a pretty solid umpire, you know? I mean, you obviously had to earn that. There's only so many positions out there and such. But according to uh, this listener, this particular umpire has a certain arrogance about him, and he's rubbing some of the wrong, you know, the guys the wrong way, particularly some of the younger guys that um, maybe don't want to keep umpiring because he he continues to, like, nitpick every little thing that they do. Man, we always make mistakes out there, right? So it's pretty easy to nitpick. I know if you came out and watched me, you could nitpick a bunch of stuff, I'm sure. Uh, but if you're getting the big picture right and uh, you, you know you're managing a game well and and making good calls and you're in you know doing good mechanics you know that that's the thing that matters especially for for us that are not professionals which is pretty much almost all of us right anyway um, he was wondering you know, well what kind of advice I might have for how to handle such a person uh, in this association that's a, that's a tricky situation I mean you'd like the guy to be able to help out I mean he certainly has some knowledge that uh, that he can share with uh, different people because not everybody has the ability. Some people don't have the desire, but some people don't have the, the funds or they don't have the time or the ability to go to pro school, even if they wanted to. Um, you know, you got to have the right life situation to make that happen as well. So I had my you know thoughts about this, but I also contacted some of my uh, umpiring colleagues that... Uh, have some opinions on such things and and kind of got some ideas from them as well to um, what he might do to 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 better this situation and uh, try to handle it in as tactful a way as possible. Well, the the two gentlemen that I talked to or communicated with about this uh, both went to to pro school, uh, and uh, one of them was a minor league umpire himself for for a couple of seasons. So they, they definitely have um, some background and some understanding. They're also high-level uh, collegiate umpires. And, um, you know, 
I think they, they know what they're talking about. Okay. So the first thing they questioned was, well, why did he only work one year of, of pro ball? Um, you know, they obviously was, was released and there's probably maybe some reasons for it. Maybe some of the things that, uh, this association is, is seen and dealing with, uh, to begin with. Uh, but the other thing is, um, is that you need, you need somebody that's coming from a pro background, uh, to, to, to want to teach and to want to give information and, and, um, knowledge that others can't can attain um, very easily to these amateur umpires that um, you know could really use the information and, and make the umpire profession so much better uh, for everyone all over the country and there are scores and scores of uh, former professional umpires that um, you know, a lot of them work in collegiate ball and such things but they're in all kinds of communities all over the place we're blessed to have a few of them in uh, the West Michigan area that uh, seem to help out. One of them is the one one person that I talked to, um, or the two people that I talked to actually, about this that try to make the umpiring world a little bit better just in our area. I mean, that's all you have control over. Uh, you know, it's great if you have some nationwide or worldwide kind of concept, but you really only have um, a whole lot of uh, ability to influence your local community. So um, it's not... You know, umpiring is not a glory thing. You know, um, obviously, if you go to pro school, your your goal is to is to um, become a professional umpire and maybe make it to the major leagues. And we and we know that's that's a tough thing to do, but uh, that is the ultimate goal when people first uh, start attaining um, a professional, you know, education in you know, for lack of a better word, in umpiring and try to to move on from there. So. Basically, what we kind of came up with is the leadership of this smaller organization, but there is a leadership, there's a board of some sort, a president, I hope, and things like that. They need to um, have a sit down with this this younger guy here and tell him that these are the perceptions that uh, people are are saying and, and the way things are being perceived right now. And there's some negativity going on. And uh, they would really like to have them within the organization. And working with them, they, they certainly could use his knowledge and everything, but uh, some things have to change. So somebody's really got to, you know, strap on their big boy pants and, and say something and be a leader, right? So not everybody, of course, is a former professional umpire, but there can be lots of other leaders out there uh, in, our, in our amateur ranks that can do certain things to, to help out their local groups, right? and teach people the right way to do things and to share the knowledge that they have gained from others that have taught them. I mean, you, you don't just hide it away and, you know, lock it up or something. You know, if you know a certain way to do things the right way that makes somebody a better umpire, then it's kind of your responsibility to make sure that you do that. Um, it's, it's not about me. It's about us, right? That's really what it should be. We want a, a great umpiring community, and if you're selfish about it, then that's never going to happen. I'm sure there's some other listeners out there that have dealt with similar issues. Um, that is definitely something that um, that we can all relate to. We we had not quite the same thing here in my local high school association, which is a larger association, um, but um, 
you know, there were some things done certain ways um, that maybe weren't the best and some people with certain attitudes that uh, didn't really help the situation. We had kind of a changeover in leadership and some new people in new spots, and and that's slowly been changing, I think, for the better. Um, But it takes time and takes some people willing to step up and maybe say some things that some people don't necessarily want to hear, but they maybe need to hear, you know? Um, So hopefully all of you out there that are listening to this can be those people that do the things that need to be done, you know, to make umpiring in your area just a little bit better. It's only a kick. A jump. A block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle. A run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. This next segment piggybacks the segment I just did there on dealing with a bad apple. Uh, this is um, some information that was recently sent out by Rich Fetchett, the, um, one of the main Division I collegiate umpire uh, signers here in, in the Midwest and the eastern part of the country. Anyway, he um, and his communications that he sends out to people talked about don't be this guy and he has a list of several things that you should not do to be that guy and and to me this is like bad apple kind of stuff and this would apply obviously to college umpires but it applies to high school uh, umpires it applies to any level you're working you know little league travel ball whatever you're doing right first thing Don't be the guy that arrives at the locker room with resume in hand figuratively, uh, ready to make sure his partners know of his extensive credentials and how lucky they are today to be working with him. Second thing, uh, don't be the guy that has some professional ball background and his response to most pregame discussion is, well, when I was in the game, this is how we did it. I don't know if all you guys know that, but that's a common thing that a lot of guys that work pro ball, you know, they were in the game. And, um, you know, of course, everything's a game, I guess. <laughs> you know, right? We're all working a game, <laughs> whatever level it might be. So, anyway, it makes you sound a little arrogant when you say that kind of stuff. Don't be the guy that always has a better or more colorful war story to share or something about the big game assignment he has recently or um, he had recently or the one that is in his future or on his future schedule, right? If they want to know, they'll ask you. Don't be the guy that enjoys talking about the long, close relationship he has with one or more of the coaches. Uh, Don't be the guy that finds fault in something or everything about the facility and the treatment by the school personnel. All right. Don't be the guy that likes to be the center of attention at a plate meeting, always ready with a joke or an unneeded comment. Don't be the guy that is known for his cute and flirtatious comments to female bat handlers and female trainers. That's a good way to not be working any uh, sports at all, right? Um, Don't be the guy that between innings and during pitching changes or whatever it might be is sure to be seen chatting with somebody or anybody um, and has to feel popular and liked by players and coaches, etc. And um, also, on the other extreme, don't be the guy that comes out with a scowl and looks angry and acts angry about having to be on the field 
and clearly gives the impression he does not enjoy officiating. He barks up players and coaches. He's not at all approachable. He's hard for coaches to talk to. Simple questions or challenges are met immediately with negative responses and warnings and threats and things like that, right? Um, Also, don't be the guy that looks very casual or disinterested on the field, that looks bored as if there's nothing better to do, you know, during this game. Don't be the guy that's uh, that in difficult situations during a game is quick to cover himself and is willing to do so even at the expense of his partners or crewmates. He's a me instead of us guy, right? Uh, don't be the guy that um, when a tough situation or call arises and he's approached by a coach um, who's angry is defensive and he's not a good listener, and he shows little tact or ability to defuse the situation, and he has very little feel as to when to issue an official warning or eject somebody. Also, don't be the guy that when a game's over, after failing to offer input or help on the field in some difficult situation, arrives back in the locker room with information and advice on how things could have or should have been handled differently. If you had the info, you should have given it on the field. Right, guys? And finally, um... Don't be the guy that has little time for post-game discussions or review and is in a hurry to go do whatever the heck he's going to do after the game, um, whether it be with his family, friends, or whatever else he's planning on doing. So those are a few things that uh, Rich Fetchett uh, advises all of his umpires to do, and I think that's uh, good advice for anybody that's officiating um, and umpiring any sport anywhere. So some things to keep in mind. Recently I had some conversations with uh, some umpires and, and heard about some things about dealing with dealing with dugouts that are getting chippy and uh, saying things um, to the umpires or maybe to the other team as well. And there's there's issues. In my experience, this is more of a problem in college games than in high school games. Um, I think it's because the players are a little bit older and, and a little bit more of wisecrackers and stuff like that. And, and, you know, I don't know, the competitive testosterone gets going a little bit more. And also there's more guys in the dugouts. You know, a high school team, uh, I don't know, you might have 15 guys or something like that. But on some of these college teams, man, you could have, with all the, the, the pitcher-only guys out there, and everything, you could have 25, 30 guys around there. I mean, there, there's a bunch of guys on the roster. So there's um, more guys clowning around, uh, doing whatever, you know, coming up with silly things that they like to do before or after games or between innings and, and you know, saying they're, they're little quips about things, and sometimes they, they really don't know where the line is, or maybe they do and they just don't care. But this becomes a problem when you start hearing comments, and, and the problem is that we usually have a hard time knowing who said it, right? I mean, we don't know these guys personally. We don't know their distinct voices. So you know it maybe came from the middle of the dugout or the left or the right side or whatever, but you don't know who said it. Okay, it could be somebody in the game. Lots of times it's somebody not in the game that's saying something. So how do you deal with that? Because you can't just let it go. You can't have somebody yelling, you know, hey, flip a coin out there or you're terrible or something like that. Um, You've got to be able to do something with that. So 
you know, there's a couple ways you could you can think about it. I mean, obviously, you're going to be addressing the head coach on this situation. So if it is something that is ejectable that they did, that somebody needs to go uh, from whatever they yelled, okay, it's clearly something that was directed like at the umpires or something that was way over the line, then you can either tell the coach that, I mean, I've seen it a couple ways. There's two things. You can say, either you tell me who did it or I'm picking somebody and you eject somebody. That's maybe, you know, that's kind of a hard line way to go, but I've seen and heard about that being done before. Or you can tell the coach, you tell me who did it or I'm ejecting you, one of the others. Uh, I heard about a situation recently where somebody ejected, they made the coach pick somebody to eject and they pick somebody. Maybe they were too honest and they picked the correct person, I guess. I, I, I don't know. But, um, you know, the, the conference commissioner had a little problem with that. All right. So those are a couple things to keep in mind on how you're going to do that. The thing you can't do is just let it go because they're not going to stop then. Right. The other issue along the same lines here that um, I've tried to um, be better at and uh, definitely be a hard, more of a hard liner on these kind of things is comments from the dugouts toward the other team. This is completely unacceptable um, at any level. And um, I, again, I see this more in collegiate games and in high school games, but you see it in high school and, and sometimes you see it in the summer in like travel ball games. But uh, warning, first time, you know, less of something way over the line. And then you got to start getting people gone. They got to be run. You, you cannot let people uh, be saying that, particularly at pitchers, uh, particularly personal comments, you know, about their appearance or something like that. Um, that stuff is just going to lead to bad blood and bad things happening in your game. And you're not managing your game well. Your game's going to turn out of control. And that's on you. So you got to know that that is not going to be accepted. Um, and it doesn't matter if they got away with it at some point. You're not accepting that. Um, you warn them, you know, because you always should be giving warnings, uh, you know, when appropriate, unless it's something clearly over the line. And then if they decide that uh, they don't want to heed your warning, then they are ejecting themselves. That's the kind of the way we want it to work, right? So a few things to keep in mind, um, some recent uh, conversations I had with some umpires uh, about that um, as our new seasons start. Last week I started another quiz, uh, this one being the MHSAA baseball quiz for um, postseason tournament consideration for all umpires. And I did the first five questions. This week, I'm going to do the next five questions. There's 30 total on his, on this uh, quiz, so you know it'll take me a few weeks here to get it done. So number six is, the ball is immediately dead when malicious contact occurs. And this is rule 511M. Choice A, by the defense only. Choice B, by the offense only. Choice C, by either the offense or defense. Or choice D, by neither the offense, nor defense. Uh, what do you got for the correct answer? If you picked C, you are correct by neither the offense or defense. All right, number seven. No runners on. 
A pitch slips from the pitcher's hand and stops about halfway between the mound and home plate. This is rule 614. Choices. A. A ball is added to the count. B. A balk is called. Or C. It's a no pitch. If you picked C, it's a no pitch, you are correct. Um, remember, if it uh, runs around base, it'd be a balk, of course, right? Uh, and if there were no runners on base and it crossed the foul line, then it would be a ball. Number eight, a pitcher may never feign or throw to an unoccupied base. This is rule 624B. Is that true or is that false? Uh, when I first saw this question, I saw the throw thing there, and that made it slightly confusing. But the correct answer is um, that it is false. All right. So just think of like a pickoff, um, or you know, like a guy leaves early from first. There's this run around first, and uh, he starts to, to go early for some reason. He steps off and throws a second base. Well, he threw to an unoccupied base. Nobody was on second. That's illegal as long as you're trying to put a runner out, which which is what he'd be trying to do, right? Number nine, runner on third, one out. As the pitcher starts his windup, the batter is um, the batter abruptly throws up his hands and requests time. As a result, the pitcher stops his motion. This is rule six two four D one. Anyway, choices A. A strike is added to the batter. B, a balk is called on the pitcher. Or C, both start over from scratch. Correct answer, C, both start over from scratch. We're certainly not going to penalize the pitcher and call a balk because the batter yelled time, which you know they would think that they get time as soon as they, they ask for it, but we know that's not true, right? And a strike is not added to the batter unless both feet were completely stepped out of the box. Um, when he did that, then you could add a strike there, but that almost never happens. All right. Um, but if it did, that that's the only way that would happen. All right. One more question. Number 10, runner on first one out with the first baseman holding the ball. The pitcher moves up to the mound and straddles the rubber. This is legal. Is that true or false? This is rule six, two, five. Well, in high school baseball, um, in other forms baseball too uh that is false you cannot straddle actually you can't be on the dirt uh without the ball right um otherwise we got a balk there so those are the next five and uh next week of course i will do five more and see how you do hopefully you did pretty well on this i've gotten a little feedback from some people that they seem to like these little quizzes here and there it's good to get you thinking about stuff right and um you know some of them are some of the questions are a little easier than others, but uh, still, you know, stuff that pops up, it's good stuff. All right. So until next time, uh, keep studying your rule book and uh, making sure that you can get all these correct on the little quizzes that I pose on the podcast. Most of you are familiar with the Windelstadt family and their legacy as major league umpires you might not be as familiar with the Gorman family and their legacy. Um, current Major League umpire Brian Gorman's father, Tom, was a longtime uh, National League umpire from 1951 to 1976, and a very well-respected umpire at that, too. 
So my umpire spotlight today is going to be Tom Gorman. And like I said, he um, umpired um, mainly in the 50s and 60s into the mid-70s. But he also was uh, a major league pitcher for just um, you know four games um, in, in five innings in 1939 for the New York Giants. Uh, unfortunately for him, his playing career was cut short because uh, the Second World War broke out and he served in the military um, during the war. And by the time he came back from the war, uh, his playing days were, were pretty much past him. Gorman grew up in the Hell's Kitchen area of uh, New York City in what was a rough neighborhood, but he thought it was a, a good place to grow up. His family was of Irish descent, and you know, for a long time their name was O'Gorman, but eventually they dropped the O. Like many uh, Irish in the New York City area, uh, his grandfather and a couple of his sons were police officers, so that was kind of the way that things went. But uh, Tom's father, uh, David Francis, was a huge baseball fan, especially of the New York Giants, and uh, he gave his son his first glove, a Carl Hubble model uh, with the short fingers and um, he took his son to watch Giants and Yankees games and Tom's favorite player when he was a kid was Lou Gehrig while his dad's was Bill Terry for the um, New York Giants so all those Hall of Fame players that they got to watch back in the day anyway Tom's baseball career um, roadmap kind of developed early he loved playing sports but his allegiance was divided between uh, baseball and basketball he was six foot two, which was tall back in, in that time, um, you know, in the 1930s. And he played center at Powers Memorial High School, which later, if you know your basketball history, uh, was where Lou Alcindor played and eventually became a star, better known as Kareem Abdul Jabbar. Anyway, Gorman went on to play 13 years of professional basketball in the Pennsylvania State Pro League and the New York State Pro League. And he played half a season for the Toronto Huskies of the Basketball Association of America, which was one of the forerunners of the NBA. So that was kind of his his main love as um, an athlete, at least early on. But he also um, coached and refereed along the way. And he loved basketball. And some of his big, biggest successes, of course, were were you know on the basketball court, but he had some on the on the baseball diamond as well. He uh, pitched for Powers Memorial City's championship team back in uh, the mid '30s, and uh, he had uh, his a teammate Pancho Snyder, who um, threw batting practice, and both he and his teammate threw batting practice for the Giants at the old Polo Grounds in the New York City area. Anyway, when he was there, he impressed Bill Terry, his dad's old favorite player, um, with his ability to throw, and they wanted to sign him. And so he went home to tell his father this because, you know, he knew he was a big Giants and Bill Terry fan. And his dad said, um, well, he told his dad, Bill Terry would like to see you tomorrow morning about 10, 10.30. And um, he, Tom's father, um, Terry gave Tom's father a cigar and told him how great his son was and... Um, and a good athlete, and all this other stuff. And Tom's father told Terry that um, he was a fan of his and agreed to let Tom sign sign him to the Giants, and they gave him a signing bonus of $500, which was obviously really good money in the uh, midst of the Depression. So after two years in the minors, um, 
Gorman's Major League career consisted of five innings, as I mentioned. Um, four games at the end of the 1939 season. He was 20 years old. He gave up four runs. He walked one. He struck out two. And he threw one wild pitch. Um, and he was hitless in one time at bat. But, hey, he got to hit in the major leagues, right? And uh, he also handled the two fielding chances that he had. So that's what it was. But, hey, you know anybody that can make it to the major leagues, even if that's all he did, that is quite an accomplishment. He was back in the minors in 1940, but then he got drafted in 41, like I mentioned, and um, didn't return to professional baseball for four years, and that's really tough to do. Um, he underwent his training at Fort Dix in New Jersey uh, and then Fort Meade in Virginia before ending up at Camp uh, Stoneham in San Diego. Unlike many other former players, though, he did not play baseball while in the service, um, Gorman was a sergeant in the 16th Infantry Regiment of the 1st Division, like the New York Division it was, and he fought in the uh, North African campaign, uh, mainly against the Italians and the Nazis, right? Before being discharged, uh, he organized service teams, um, and in 1945, Gorman's father, uh, once he got back, suddenly died, all right? Anyway, while he was there, um, Gorman proposed to Margaret Fay during a game between the Giants and the Reds at the Polo Grounds, and they got married in October 1945. Gorman tried to make a comeback after he got out of the service, but he started having shoulder problems with some calcium deposits and such things, and so um, he ended up getting cut. He played ball down in Mexico for a little while, but that was a little wild and crazy, and then once he got back into the States and stuff, the um, the Boston Red Sox um, made an offer of for him to um, either coach one of their, their farm teams or there was another idea of him umpiring in, in the New England League. Gorman did not feel like he was umpire material, but others disagreed with him on that. They thought he was the right size, he had the right temperament, uh, he knew the game well. And um, he turned down the idea at first, but it did kind of intrigue him. And he talked it over with his wife, and um, they decided that, you know, he should try it for a year, all right? I mean, he wasn't real keen on them that, uh, you know, he'd get a car, and, and, and then the job was his for $180 a month, you know, and that wasn't like some great money at the time. But um, he decided to try it out for the uh, 1947 season. It took Gorman four years to make it to the major leagues. He um, made his debut in September 1951 in Chicago. He was a third base umpire in the four-man crew that included Al Barlick, Lee Belafont, and Augie Donatelli. And um, Gorman had a lot of respect for those guys. He thought that was a great crew to be working with. And he made his first mistake during his first big league game. So, you know, everybody screws up, even the big league guys, right? So anyway, a batter popped up near the Cubs' dugout, and the third baseman made the catch on a slab of concrete next to the bat rack, and Gorman signaled no catch. Uh, but, you know, in the International League where he was working before, concrete was not a part of the playing field. And But, however, this was not the case in the majors, and Belafonte corrected him. I don't know if they changed the call or not. Um, they would nowadays, right? We'd want to get the call right. But I don't really know if they did that uh, back in 1951. Maybe it just was what it was, right? Gorman was known for his uh, association with Leo DeRocher, the longtime National League manager. 
and several you know, rhubarbs and altercations that they had over the years. Um, it, they even made it into a popular uh, Miller Lite beer commercial with the DeRocher Gorman routine, you know, um, making like, you know, the banquet circuit basically. But Gorman only had uh, 27 career ejections, which are which is near the bottom of any umpire that worked at least 3,000 major league games. Um, but uh, he ejected... He ejected Leo DeRocher on several occasions uh, during his 25-plus years in the in the National League. Anyway, Gorman retired as an umpire in 1976, and he worked for a while as a supervisor for the National League. And someone once asked him if he was ever wrong, and he said, No, I'm never wrong. I can't be wrong on my job. Uh, but I've made mistakes. I am a human being. I could be wrong. But when I call a play, that's the way I see it. All of us have missed calls on certain plays before. Unfortunately, we'll do it again. And when you, that is pretty much it, right? I mean, when you um, make that call at the, at the moment, uh, you thought it was correct. I mean, that's why you, you called it that way. You might have screwed it up for some reason or another, usually being too quick, right? But, uh, yeah, that, that does, uh, does kind of sum up the way you kind of feel. Um, it's easy to look back at like a replay or something and see that you got it wrong. But at the moment, you had your reasons for calling it the way that you did. Of course, Gorman had uh, many notable things that happened to him throughout his umpiring career. He uh, umpired in the World Series in 1956, 1958, 1963, 1968, and 1974. He was um, crew chief in the last two of those World Series. In 1956, he was in left Field, six-man crew, right, for uh, Don Larson's perfect game. So that's pretty impressive. Uh, in game one of the 1968 World Series between the Detroit Tigers and the St. Louis Cardinals, that was an historic game because Bob Gibson of the Cardinals struck out uh, at that time a series record 17 Tigers. Who was the home plate umpire? Tom Gorman. Gorman also officiated in the National League Championship Series in 1971 and 75. He was the crew chief in 71. And in the three-game playoff to determine the National League champion in 1959, he worked that as well. He worked the All-Star Game in 1954, 1958, 1960, when they had two games, and he worked both those games. And in 1969, calling balls and strikes for the second half of the 1960 game. Uh, during a game in 1962, he discovered that the Giants, by now in San Francisco, of course, were having their groundskeepers water down the Candlestick Park infield to slow down the L.A. Dodgers' Maury Wills, who was, you know, great stolen base champion, especially in 62, still over 100 bases. Gorman stopped the game for an hour and a half to allow the field to dry. <laughs> anyway... Among other notable games in which he umpired, there were nine no-hitters tying a National League record shared by Frank Secori and Augie Dantelli. He tied the mark on July 9th, 1976, working second base and Larry Durker's 6 nothing win. Uh, let's see here. Paul Pryor, who also officiated in that game, tied the mark himself later that year and broke it when working in his 10th no-hitter in 1978. Uh, Gorman was a plate umpire uh, for two no-hitters, uh, Warren Spahn's first 
in uh, September 16th, uh, 1960, and Bill Stolman's first on uh, April 17th, 1969. He was a left field umpire, of course, on Don Larson's Perfect Game, and he was a home plate umpire on June 15th, 1952, when the St. Louis Cardinals set an NL record by overcoming an 11-0 deficit to beat the Giants 14-12. And again, two weeks later, on June 29th, when the Cubs scored seven runs with two outs in the ninth to beat the Reds 9-8. Two years later, August 5th, 1954, he was again the home plate umpire when the Reds gave up a record 12 runs, all of them unearned, after there were two outs and no one on base in the eighth inning of a 20-7 loss to the Brooklyn Dodgers. The inning ended only when Gil Hodges, uh, his bid for a grand slam, was caught high off the center field wall. <laughs> so those are some crazy games, I'm, I'm sure. Uh, and also on May 2nd, 1956, he was again behind the plate, and the Giants and Cubs used 48 players in a 6-5, 17-inning New York victory. Cub Don Hoke struck out a record six times against six different pitchers. Anyway, on April 17, 1964, Grumman was um, on home plate umpiring for the inaugural game at uh, Shea Stadium between the Mets and the Pirates. Finally, in 1975, uh, Tom Grumman was honored by the Al Summers Umpire School as the Outstanding Umpire of 1974. I remember he worked the World Series that year. In his acceptance remarks, he said of umpiring, it's a hard road, but a good road. Sometimes you'll ask yourself if it's worth it. If you've got the guts and the skills, the answer is bound to be yes. He added, people may come to see ball players, but there'd be no baseball without good umpires. And I know some of you guys sometimes wonder why you're doing it, especially when it's a rough game, like some of the ones he had there where it's, you know, nine to eight crazy 17 inning games and everything else. Um, but uh, that's really the case, you know. Um, if you got the guts, then you find out that it is worth it, right? Tom Gorman died of a heart attack in 1986 when he was 67 years old. But before that, he told his family, he said, When I go, I want to be buried in my umpiring suit holding my indicator. So when he died, his children carried out his father's wishes, and he was dressed in a suit which was meticulously buttoned, and wore his blue cap with the white NL embroidered on the front of it. He also held his indicator in his hand, and it was set at 3-2, and two, just like the title of his father's memoir that he wrote after he retired. Seems like a reasonable way to go. That That's an umpire's umpire right there. So with that, uh, that's this week's Umpire Spotlight, Tom Gorman. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Hammer and Umpire podcast. I hope you gained a little more knowledge about umpiring and uh, you got a few more things to think about the next time that you step onto the baseball field. As always, you can reach out to me. You can send me an email at spinalfusion06 at yahoo.com. You can follow me and, and send me a tweet at, at Kevin R. Weber on Twitter, 1B and Weber. 
Or you can check out the podcast Facebook page, which is at The Hammer Podcast on Facebook, obviously. Um, I enjoy getting messages and information from uh, people each week, and it seems like I, I get at least a couple things every week from some people with some questions or comments about something going on in the umpiring world or in just in their world or just some feedback about the show. So feel free to send that my way. Of course, you can always leave me a voice message, 60 seconds or less, by going to the Anchor app and liking the show and then leaving a little message about something. So if there's something on this week's show or past shows as well that uh, you have a comment or a question about, feel free to do that. And I'd be happy to try to plug that in uh, on the next episode and uh, have your opinions be heard out there. So until next time, keep calling strikes.